the lesson. Let me write down the time that I begin, as is my new custom. Here we go. April 25th, 2010, Eric's birthday, lecture discussion number 21 on Zechariah 11, Proverbs 6, Matthew 12, and Revelation 6, as well as John 12 and 13. As you know, and some Revelation 17 is in here today and, and a whole lot of uh, Revelation 9, though it may not be as obvious. Well, we're wrapping up this, believe it or not. Uh, I expected when I started writing this uh, the other day, I expected this would be the last of my eight, eight mystery series. This is uh, lecture number 21. And I thought, OK, I should be able to finish it by now. And I, my goal is to finish today. But you know how my track record is on these things. It's not good. And as I wrote, trying to squeeze it all in, I'm up to 17, 18 pages. And I can't finish it. So we're not going to finish it today. But we're going to get very close. And uh, in any event, we should be, like I said, quite close to the end. And we should be moving on to another subject quite soon. And if not next Sunday, which it won't be, perhaps May 9th. And it'll be a special Mother's Day sermon, I'm sure. Okay, it won't be, but it'll be the start of the next series. And what the next blocks of subjects, a lot of you have asked me, what are you going to do next? Uh, um, what they're going to be, I haven't quite made the decision yet. I haven't made the decision yet. I've got some ideas where I may go. I might go back into Romans. It's been a long time since I've been in Romans. Most of you probably weren't here when I was in Romans. Some of you weren't born when I was in Romans. Well, most of you weren't born. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Class kind of changes over. But anyway, that's probably where I'll go. Maybe not. I might go into Philippians. But as always the case, no matter where we go from here, whatever direction we go, what's going to come with us? Thermodynamics, dualism, astronomy, quantum mechanics and physics, biogenesis. I'm being asked to do a lecture. I got a call the other day. Would you please come to a local school and do a lecture, uh, one of your biogenesis, thermodynamics, physics lectures? On supernova remnants, and and I said, sure. How long would you like me to to speak on this simple subject? And they said, um, can you do it in thirty minutes? Oh yeah, yeah, not a problem. I I see no reason why I can't do it in thirty minutes. I said, when would you like me to do it? And it's a couple of Mondays away. And I said, well, if it's no problem for you. I'd like to get it out of the way and do it as quickly as I can, especially since it'll be 30 minutes. Because I, as you know, I don't even start the introduction until 45 minutes. So I, and I don't tell them that. They know, though. And the, what she said to me was, is that, no, 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 we want you to do it in three or four weeks. And I said, well, why is that? Because we want to advertise you. <laughs> <laughs> So there'll be all kinds of junior high kids and their parents there, and I can't wait for that. But anyway, thermodynamics, dualism, astronomy, quantum physics, biogenesis, all of that will follow us no matter where we go. And so continue to expect them to be consistently interspersed. They, they always will be. I think it's critically important to today's church that we get all that done. Anyway, we've been slogging along lately, battling through all these lists. And this is the last list of the eighth mystery but we've been quietly picking them all off, item after item, and you almost have to look back because it doesn't seem to you that we've accomplished anything, I know. But we have gone through quite a bit. 
It occurs inobtrusively. It's unobserved most of the time. But then you come out of the cornfield. So we wade through list after list and we battle our way through and we come out of the cornfield. And what do we find? Another cornfield. That's right. That's exactly what we find. Maybe there's a little path. What's on the path, by the way, those of you who are farmers, you come out of the cornfield, you got a little road, and then more cornfield. What's on the road? Snakes, that's right. That's what's on that road. So you don't hang around the road, you go right into the cornfield. And that's what we'll do. But two things, I've got to establish two things before we hack away at our final list. And one of those things is uh, Jesus Christ's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And these seven... By the way, not, don't limit his I am statements just to these seven. He makes lots of I am statements. He makes I am statements all over the place. He likes to make I am statements. Why does he make I am statements? There's so many I am statements. That's a very important question for you to know. These seven, though, for that matter, uh, refer, all of them do, but these seven really refer back to Exodus 3.14. What's Exodus 3.14? Exodus 3.14 is where he's talking to Moses. Jesus Christ is the one of the triune Godhead. Let me say this as strongly as I can. Jesus Christ is the one of the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in monotheism. One God. The uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord, O God, is one. The Lord of Israel is one God. Jesus Christ, however, is the one person of the triune Godhead who spoke to Moses and declared to Moses the name of God. Because Moses asked, I'm going to go into Egypt. No one knows me. No one has any idea who I am. And I'm going to say I'm the leader because God said I'm the leader and you're to follow me. And they're going to ask me, what's God's name? And God's name is I am. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That is Exodus 3.14. And we know that Jesus Christ is the person of the triune Godhead who is speaking because he says so in John 8.24 and John 8.58. And those preeminent verses in all of Scripture, in my view, those two are the preeminent verses in all of the New Testament. I'll say that again and again and again. Let me give you a little bit of them. You must believe I am or you will publish. Uh, publish. You must believe I am or you will perish in your sins. That's what Christ said. You must believe I am the I am. If you don't believe that I am God. And he said I am, as you know, for a bunch of reasons. Why did God choose I am? Because I am is in the present. And Christ is declaring himself to always be in the present and therefore outside of the created order. What's the created order? Time, space, matter, and energy. He's saying I am. You have no present, as you know. You have a past and you have a future. And if you think you have a present, I want you to get your stopwatch and tell me how long it is. You ready? Click, click. You don't have a present. You are inside of time. He is outside of time. He sees all of time in the present. And it's very important that you understand that. And he says it over and over and over again. I am. I am the one that spoke to Moses, and I am outside of the created order. That means what? 
that he is the creator of the created order. And you must believe that or you will perish in your sins. Uh, John eight twenty four. He also said before Abraham, I am. And what did the Jews do when he said that? Eight fifty eight of John. What did they do? They charged. They threw rocks at him. Not an effective strategy. I'm going to throw rocks at the creator of rocks. I'm going to throw rocks at the one who is outside of time. But they they recognized immediately what he was saying. He was saying that I am the one who spoke to Moses, that sent him into Egypt, that brought Israel out. I am the Redeemer God of Israel. I am the creator of all things. They got that. And that's why you have to understand that Jesus Christ is the I am. That is essential to salvation. You must believe that. If you do not have a strong deity of Christ position, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not saved. How's that? For running off the visitor. You have to have a strong position. You have to have the only position. You have to have the truth. If you have some watered-down, nonsensical view of the deity of Christ, you're in a lot of trouble. He said so. Let me read him again. You must believe that I am or you will perish. Simple as that. Anyway, he separates out seven I am's, which he then adds expression and emphasis to. And you should know them all, and I'm sure you've heard them all. He says, I am the bread of life. John 6.35. I am the light of the world. That's very important. The light. That's the primable light. I didn't put this over. Let me write it up here where no one can see it. I got it too close to the drum set to flip it over today. Sorry. Primable. Not primeval. Primable. What he's saying is, I am the first light. All light comes from me. I am the door of the sheep, John 10:7. I am the good shepherd, John 10:11. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11:25. I am the way, the truth and the life, John 14:6. How many lives we got? Bread of life, resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Now, I kind of accented those, but I want you to notice a couple of things from those seven at minimum, just a couple. I won't dwell on it too long. But most importantly is the definitive singular. He's not saying I am a vine or I am a piece of bread or I'm a shepherd. He's not doing that. Definitive singular. He's the bread. How many breads are there of life? There's one. He's the light. How many lights are there? There's one light. He's the door. Only one door. He's the good. See? He's the good. He's the resurrection. He's the life, the way, the truth, the life, and the truth. He's beating it in, isn't he? He is alone. These things, there is no... Other way, he's telling us, there is no other truth, there's no other life, there's no other resurrection, there's no other good. There's no other door, there's no other light, there's no other bread, there's no other true vine. All of them come from him. That, by the way, when I say to you, life comes from him, you yell back at me, what? The law of biogenesis. All life comes from him. Who yelled back at me the law of biogenesis? 
None of you. No, did somebody do it? Did we hear a law of biogenesis come out of the group? Yay! Yay. Down the table? Good. You can go first in the buffet line. We reward you here. This is a works-based system. That's contrary to scripture, but that it's, it's okay. We're corrupt. There is nothing but him, just him. There are no other salvations. There are no other resurrections that come from any other source. There's no other life that comes from any other source. There's no other good that comes from any other source. He is the source of all good. He is the source of all life. He is the source of all salvation. He is the source of all resurrection. He is the source of all truth. There is no other truth. Is that what the world teaches us today? There's just him. There's no other. There's none. I'm sorry if you've come here today and you're uh, a universalist. Actually, I'm not sorry. That's a fake sorry. He intends to make this as clear as he possibly can for all the universalists who say there are many paths up the mountain to God. There are not. There's just one. Him. Nothing else. Don't we love the fan? Do we all hear the fan? It's right over the top of me. I wonder if the fan gets onto the... uh, Does anyone hear the fan besides the front row? Okay. It was suggested today that we need somebody who's pretty good with a shotgun. Yes. Maybe we could throw a flower up there and somebody who can... Anyway, God says otherwise to those who say there are many paths to him. He, Christ left no room for debate or nuance or quibbling. Those seven that he gave stand as an unassailable barrier against the perversions and the pollutions and the profaning doctrines and the traditions conceived by men. And there are a lot of them. Traditions now have strength over doctrine in the church, in the contemporary church today. But Jesus Christ says that he is the sole solitary life. He is the pre-existent, primal, first life from which all life comes. There had to be life. See, because the law of biogenesis, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, says that life must come from life. So where did the first life come from? I have to have a pre-existent life. He says, I am that pre-existent life. All life comes from me through me. He also said he is the pre-existent primal light. All light comes from him. There is no light but him. It all comes through him. He is the life, the first life. He is the light. All light comes and through him. He is the good. All good, all truth comes through him. There is no resurrection except through him. So, to sum all that up again, he's alone and he is outside of time. Or he is alone And he is pre-existent. He's the first and the last. And trying to understand what he does and says without understanding first, alone and pre-existent. If you don't have alone and pre-existent nailed down, when you start dealing with the mysteries, you're going to get lost if you get anywhere. And and I say here, this is what I said, trying to understand what he does and says without alone and pre-existent, without understanding that about Christ, is futile. Your knowledge of Scripture 
Somebody found the breaker box. Yay. It's futile. You will not understand the Bible if you do not understand that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Always God in the flesh. Never not God in the flesh. Your salvation, your resurrection, your life depends on him always being God in the flesh. If you don't have that, your understanding of Scripture will be a very difficult challenge for you. And you'll go through life blown all over the place trying to figure out what to grab a hold of. But I must say that uh, a, a, I don't want to call it inexact, a destruction of the deity of Christ in the contemporary Laodicean church age, which we're in. By the way, what does Christ call the age that we're in in Revelation 3.16? What does he call it? Calls it the age of what? The age of vomit. That's what he does. Read it. 3.16. Instead of holding up John 3.16 at the football games, hold up Revelation 3.16. We are in the age of the Laodicean church, the age of vomit. The church that does not understand the seven I am's of John. Okay. I had to deal with that again because it comes up today. Now we can proceed with our final eighth mystery list. I'm used to, we decided to try the... um, Clear, see-through Lexan, very holy Lexan, uh, a lot stronger. We were tired of moving it back and forth, but it doesn't lower. So I keep trying to lower it, but can you see through it? Okay, so that's better, isn't it? Yes, okay. We try, we try, no, you can. We try to respond to your complaints once a year, no matter what. Okay. I had to deal with that so that we can proceed with this. You'll understand here in a few minutes. For those of you who have missed the last 20 weeks, it's going to be tough. Sorry. Not really. But here's the truncated version of this list. I can't go over it again or I'll never get through it. I have four horses of Revelation 6. The four horses of Revelation 6. The white horse. What's the other horses? Come on, you can do this. Red, black, you can mix that up. Everybody does. And pale horse. Those four horses have one rider, the Antichrist, as the one rider, and they represent four stages of his destruction. They're, they're in order of what he will do. He rides first on a peaceful horse. He comes peacefully, and then he becomes destructively, uh, wheels death to the uh, Gentiles and to the Jews, and finally, again, to the entire world. Pale, of course, is a form of green, and it means death. But those four horses are, in fact, his order of how he uh, uh, dispensates, if you will, his ministry. The Judas-Satan kiss, very important. The reason it's on our board is because the kiss that Judas, when he has Satan inside of him, gives to Christ in Gethsemane, that has a relationship to the first piece of bread that Christ gives Judas as the person of honor at the table, the person of love at the at the Passover dinner, at the Passover banquet, Jesus Christ gives the first piece of bread, that bread of great love and great friendship and high honor to Judas. Judas reciprocates with this kiss in Gethsemane, and they have a relationship. And you need to know about that relationship. Christ crucified is a stumbling block, and it is foolishness. It is a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, you know the symbol for, the sign for in the Old Testament, the typological reference to Christ crucified in the Old Testament is what? Circumcision. That's right. 
Okay, Christ crucified is foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. Judas is called a thief, a guide, and a real estate investor. And it's very important that you understand why Judas bought a piece of real estate and why he is called a guide. Now, I can get rid of primable now. Why he is called a guide. What's the obvious question on guide? The obvious question is, who did he guide and why is he guiding them? And then thief, what did he steal and why did he steal it? Does, does the, the theft have anything to do with the real estate investing? That's a question that uh, Arthur Pink spent a lot of time with. And then finally, on our, I'm sorry, not finally, but then our strong man, Matthew 12, 29, um, and our armed man or man of Belial in Proverbs 6, 11. Man of Belial, of course, means man of Satan and the ignorant of Scripture, the ones with no defense, the ones that have not learned anything about the Bible, the ones that do not know that Jesus Christ is God himself. They are destroyed by the armed man. He is called a destroyer in Proverbs. God calls you lazy and slovenly and a sluggard if you don't understand basic wisdom in Scripture. And the most basic is the deity of Christ. If you don't have that, you are going to get massacred in this life. No hard feelings. And the strong man, of course, of Matthew 12, 29, Christ goes into the strong man's house and plunders it. So there's our list. Oh, it ends with the floating axe head of 2 Kings 6. The floating axe head is the place in 2 Kings 6 where the axe head falls into the water and it is a borrowed axe head. It's extremely valuable. The man is cutting down trees. It slips and goes into the Jordan River The Jordan River comes from Adam, Joshua 3, and descends into the Dead Sea. And it means descender into death and destruction. Somewhere in the middle of that river, the man drops this extremely valuable axe head. And if he doesn't get it back, the owner of it will demand his life. So Elisha, who is a type of Christ, throws in a branch in that spot. And the axe head floats to the surface and the man picks it up. And so now you know that that is a picture of your soul spirit. It is Christ who gets you out of death and destruction. If you stay in the river, you end up here in the Dead Sea, and nothing gets out of the Dead Sea. Only the sun evaporates it out. There is no salvation here. And the man was in great turmoil. I lost the axe head. How do I get it back? And it was floated back by throwing a branch in. And the branch, of course, is a picture that one of the types, I'm sorry, one of the names of Christ is the branch Now, that spot that that happened, of course, as you know, is also where Christ was baptized and is also where the Ark of the Covenant went across that river when the second generation of Israelites uh, uh, invaded finally after 40 years in the wilderness when the first generation died. Okay, there's your list. I summed it up really fast. And if you haven't been here, that's going to be a real problem for you to understand what that has to do with anything that I'm going to say. But uh, come and see me later or come next week. And I will catch you up in a couple of years. Not a problem. When I say a couple of years, I don't mean every Christmas for two years. I mean every week. But anyway, these, among others, explain the motive of the seed of Satan, Genesis 3.15. They explain the why and the reason that Satan and Judas united or combined. They explain that to you. So now you'll understand why it is that Satan uh, entered Judas and when he entered Judas. And by the way, that is up to some debate. Some will say he did it twice. Some will say he did it once. And next week we'll solve that. 
And we pretty much established the significance of Proverbs 6. The man of Bial last week, the armed man, and most of the strong man. We did that last week, and we, um, we got Proverbs 6 pretty well done. Because Proverbs 6, 6 and Zechariah 11, you've got to know those, or you'll never understand Judas. You'll never understand the Antichrist. Proverbs 6 explains things about the Antichrist, tells you things that he's doing. Do you remember? Anybody remember but me? I, I do really good on the tests, mostly because I write the tests. But anyway, Proverbs 6 explains that the Antichrist was beyond evil, or the Antichrist is beyond evil. He's not normal. He doesn't think like you think. He doesn't want anything you want. He doesn't care about anything you care about. You'll sit here and say, I want a car. He didn't want a car. I want a girlfriend. He didn't want a girl. I want a boyfriend. I want a husband. I want a baby. I want a puppy. The Antichrist doesn't care anything about that. I want money. He didn't care about money. I want power. He didn't care about power. I want to look good. Some of you, that will cost a lot more money than others. It's hopeless for me. Somebody asked me the other day, why don't you go in and get your eyes fixed? And I said, oh, really? They can fix my eyes? Yeah, you can have 20-20 vision. Can I have 20-20 vision? No, it's hopeless for me. I can't be fixed. That'll come for you. When it does, call me. I hope I'm still around because what will I do? Have great sympathy for you or laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh? The latter will be true. Proverbs 6 explains the Antichrist is beyond evil. He doesn't care about what we care about at all. He doesn't care how he looks. He doesn't care what he gets. He doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about stuff. That's what humans care about. Antichrist is human, but he has Satan inside of him. and He does not care about that. He doesn't care about power. But he wants constant control and he wants constant authority. Proverbs 6 says that he's always in control of everybody around him. He's an authority of everybody around him. He's extraordinarily cunning. He is the man of Satan. In other words, he is man, but he is also has the satanic seed in him. And he's in the background. And no one really notices him except his own followers. He's always given signals to his followers. What always happens to the followers of the man of Belial? By the way, what happens to the followers? They all die. Every one of them. He loves to kill his followers and he loves to kill the people that aren't his followers. He loves to kill. That's the Antichrist. That's Judas Iscariot. He always has a plan. He desires no riches. He cares nothing of fame. He loves no one. He's the man of nothing. King James calls him the man of not. N-A-U-G-H-T. The man of nothing. Some of your Bible, so badly, so badly was that translation, they call him the naughty man. They do. You probably have one. And you interpret that to mean, oh, what a bad, bad person. It means the man of nothing. And what it means is, is there's nothing that he wants except for you and for his followers especially. He loves to kill his followers. That's the Antichrist. 
That is the man of Belial. That is the man that Satan enters. Now, that man is identified in the New Testament because only one person in all of history has been entered by Satan. And that person is John 13, uh, 27, Satan. I'm sorry, Judas. Only one person in all of history has ever been entered. Only one person can be said of. He is the man of Belial. He is the man of Satan. And that is Judas. Zechariah 11, when you add that to Proverbs 6, gives you more information. The wicked shepherd, he's called the Antichrist. He has, he's blind, he has a withered arm, but he is going to eat the flesh of his own sheep. He's going to devour his sheep. Those who follow him will be cut up into pieces and eaten by him. His whole point is to deceive them. The false shepherd, the idle shepherd, the wicked shepherd, the shepherd of nothing... The not shepherd, N-A-U-G-H-T, the false shepherd, rises up and presents himself, this horrible, wicked leader, presents himself as a choice to Israel. And there he stands side by side in Zechariah 11 with the Christ. And Israel can choose one or the other. They can choose the good shepherd or they can choose the evil shepherd. Zechariah 11 says what they'll do. Who do they choose? They choose the Antichrist. Israel does. They reject the Christ and they choose the Antichrist. So put Proverbs 6 together with Zechariah 11 and now you have the correct description of Judas. Judas always in authority, in control, behind. No one noticed what he was doing. He was pure evil. He cared about nothing but death. And there's your accurate representation of Judas. If you have some... Delusion, sorry. Maybe a little sorry this time. Because I feel bad for you. You have not been taught about Judas. People don't teach you about it because they don't understand it. They never find Proverbs 6. They never find Zechariah 11. They never notice that Judas threw the 30 pieces of silver at the temple potter. They don't notice that in Zechariah 11. They don't pick that up in Matthew 27. They don't see that connection. They don't know that Christ is God. They don't recognize that Christ is outside of time and omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He's God himself in the flesh. They never see that. And so they get a misunderstanding of Judas. It's all over the church today. It's been that way since about 300. First 300 years of the church, they got it. They got it in the 1900s, the late 1900s. And, and every now and then in the 1700s. But we've lost it today. Godspell. What's another? Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, even uh, the Mel Gibson movie. The Passion of the Christ. Perhaps the preeminent deity stripping movie of all time. Okay. A list of characteristics now that we have Proverbs 6 and Zechariah 11. Um, We've got to keep them in mind. We've got to put them in the forefront as we study the New Testament accounts of the words and the actions of Judas. I've made the point before, but let me restate it here. I don't believe that any of the disciples, I don't believe a single disciple, a single apostle that was with Christ, knew or understood the true nature of Judas. I don't think they had any idea who they were dealing with. And Proverbs 6 tells me that. Proverbs 6 says that he fools everybody. Nobody notices him. 
His followers are taking orders from him, but his followers don't know that he's going to kill him. But nobody knew who Judas was among the apostles until after a certain event. Then they knew who he was. Did they recognize that he had Satan inside of him? They did not know. When did they figure out that the that Judas had Satan inside of him? That's very important. I believe that Satan and Judas fooled them all, especially fooled the Apostle John. I can see it in his writings where John is just really upset that he did not figure out who Judas was, that he was fooled. And that would be consistent, by the way, because the disciples did not comprehend the true nature of who else. They didn't know that Jesus Christ was God. He stands on the Mount of Transfiguration and opens himself up and they can see the Shekinah glory. They can see that he is the primal light. They can see that he is the light. And they go, oh, it would be nice if we build a, maybe a shed or two for Moses and Elijah. And, you know, maybe we should build stuff here. Absolutely clueless as to the true nature of Christ. They didn't grasp that this is God here. They didn't grasp that. They didn't grasp his plan of, sal- of salvation. They didn't know that he, he told them over and over again, I've got to sacrifice myself. They didn't get it. They didn't know that he had to sacrifice himself to save his own. So I wouldn't expect them then to figure out the Antichrist. Same would be the same of Judas. They did not as well understand, recognize him either for who he truly was. They didn't know that Satan was inside of him. They didn't know his true nature. And for that matter, they didn't know that his plan was to kill his own. So this is where Judas is in the white horse phase. He is in the white horse phase. He is a beautiful man. You get that from Absalom and Saul who are types of him. Judas is a beautiful man. He is a great leader. He is an amazing order. He is the absolute opposite of Moses. Would you expect that? He's peaceful. He's honored. Christ honors him at every banquet, gives him the first piece of bread. He's powerful and he appears to be caring. And none of them figured out that the opposite of that was true. Not until the anointing of Christ, John 12, 5, the first recorded words of Judas... Not until then does he reveal that he is the man of Belial, that he's the man of Satan. He challenges Christ's deity there and Christ's goodness there. And the Apostle John notes that Judas did not care about the poor. So eventually they figure it out. The caring about the poor that Judas did was revealed to be a lie. And here's where being an understanding of Greek is very handy. This is where Jeffy has got it really right, because you cannot really get a good understanding of your Bible unless you know the original Greek meanings of these words, because you cannot trust the translators. Isn't that a sad thing? That's why you need to get as many Bibles as you can and get them all side by side and look up the original words in the Greek and try to figure it out. Let me give you an example. Is Judas called a betrayer in all of your Bibles? He is. Judas the betrayer. And you've heard me say, how do you betray an omniscient God? Betrayal requires that God not know what you're doing for you to fool him. Betrayal is deceiving. How do you deceive God? You don't. If you look it up in the Greek, the word is never betrayal in the Greek. It is always hand over. 
Every single time, every lexicon, every interlinear Bible, always hand over. Some will say deliver. I use deliver the most. Judas is called the hander overer. That's kind of... Somebody laughed. Please sit in the front row. He's called the hander overer or the deliverer. You need to know that. The literal, when Judas removed, he didn't care for the poor. And John says he knows he didn't care for the poor now. Because Judas removed the things in the money box. There are things in the money box. And Judas removed the things from the money box. And that's how they knew he didn't care about the poor. They figured out that he was lying. Naturally, I want to know something now. What was it that I want to know? What things did he remove? What did he take out of the money box? How did those things get in the money box? Who put the things in the money box? When did they put the things in the money box? Obviously, Judas wants the money box. He takes it with him everywhere. Why? Things in there. Judas is the multiple times, over and over and over again, referred to, as I said, as the one who hands over the Christ. It's repeated and repeated and repeated. You really notice it when you get your Greek translation Bibles. It's all hand over, hand over. I've got mine and I've got it accented out everywhere. It's just constantly Judas handing over. And it's a key element. Why is that so important? Why is it necessary that Judas, with Satan inside of him, hand over the Christ? Why is that important? It's in Christ's plan. It's necessity, if you will. Becomes one of the great obvious questions of Judas. Why does he hand over the Christ? Why is that element constantly brought up? It's in Christ's plan, and Judas, Satan, comply with it. And that's another big mystery. Why does Satan and Judas comply with the handing over of Christ? Why not just, they know he wants to be handed over. Why do they do it? Again, Christ in total authority of his crucifixion. In control of every single small detail and aspect of it. Where he's going to be crucified. He's going to be crucified where? You can't crucify him any other place but where? Where's he going? He is going to the place of the skull. Whose skull? Goliath's skull. He's going to make sure that he is crucified on top of Goliath's skull. Who buried Goliath's skull there? David did. He wants to make sure that he's going to be crucified on top of the skull of Goliath that David buried there in the place called Golgoliatha, which means what? The place of the skull of Goliath. We are so dumb that we think it's a place that looks like a skull. And everyone laughs at us, especially the Jews. Dumb Gentile Americans. You don't know anything. You go over to Israel and you pay money to a guy that shows you a mountain and says, there's a kind of a skull looking thing there. And you pay him because you're what? A dumb Gentile American. And they steal your money. You have no wisdom. What you should have done is take your shovel there and say, I'm going to dig up this spot because I'm looking for that skull of Goliath. And if I find it, baby, I'm buying this place. And we don't. We are so easily fooled. 
We start out being easily fooled. Why? Why? Because we don't know that Jesus Christ is the God of creation at all times, every time. We don't start reading our Bible there. Okay, why is it in Christ's plan that Judas, Satan, comply with this? As I was trying to say, he controls every single aspect of it. You cannot crucify him anyplace else but the spot he wants to be crucified. You cannot do anything to him that he doesn't give you permission to do. He's in total and complete authority. Why does the guy carry his crossbeam? Because he tired? No. He's Simeon the Cyrenian. You need to have all your Simeons. Anyway. Why is it that Judas and Satan comply with this? It's very much like the do quickly of John 13, 27. Very much like that. Christ tells them to do it quickly. Hand me over and hand me over fast. You got, let's, let's hustle here. Eat your bread. You're honored. You're loved. Now get out of here and get me handed over. Because why? Three o'clock's coming. He's going to die at three o'clock on Passover. That's critical. It's three o'clock on Passover. He is going to say the second of the four. It is finished. And so that's going to happen. How do we know that's going to happen? It could be 2.59, couldn't it? At the exact instant that the high priest cuts the throat of the Passover lamb and says, it is finished, Christ will boom out, it is finished. The exact same time. I get a kick out of that because that guy is probably, he's used to doing this. Holding that lamb up, cutting its throat at 259.59 and screaming out, it is finished. And everybody goes, whoa. Except this time what? Nobody heard him. This time at three o'clock, the second of the four, it is finished, screams across the entire world. Nobody hears anything but Christ. And that's going to happen at three o'clock. Why does he want to die between the two eaves, the six and the twelve? Why does he want to die at three o'clock? Because that's what he wants, and he's God, and it's going to happen. Get used to that, right? Okay, but why do they hurry up? Why do they facilitate this ultimate goal of Christ? Why would they participate in it? They've got to know that as soon as they hand him over, everybody will know. All the disciples will know there's something different about Judas. He's not really an apostle. And they will know that he has Satan inside of him. Why will they know that? And why would Satan and Judas pull this off? Why would they say now's the time to do this? It's revelatory, you see. Judas is revealed to be the man of Belial. His secret is no longer hidden. If he complies with this, everyone would now know who Judas really is. Or would they? See, at first glance, this seems to be an impossible task for Judas and Satan. What's their plan? What did Zechariah 11 say they're going to do? They're going to stand next to the Christ. I got Judas, Satan. They're going to be the counterfeit. Here I have the Christ. What's their plan? They stand right next to him. In front of who? See, it seems impossible. How do they convince the nation of Israel to choose them with Jesus Christ, with the Messiah standing there, physically present? 
this is kind of like Little League without the coaches and the umpires when it was really worth doing. Without the parents. You just show up. See, this happened. Oh, my goodness. I have to think about when this happened. Turnigan Elementary School is still there. We used to go every day in the summer, and we'd all show up. And who else would show up? Every kid in the neighborhood, because you had to have at least 18 kids to play baseball. That's why nobody plays baseball anymore, because you only need one basketball and another guy. But you needed 18 or 20 of you to play Little League. And every single kid in the neighborhood would show up, and we'd all go there, and we'd all be what? One guy'd stand up, the other guy'd stand up, they'd call, you know, they'd rock, paper, scissors, or flip a coin, whatever they do, who could pick first, and all the kids would get picked. And then we'd break up and we'd play a game. And we were quite successful at it. Because why? We didn't have any parents there. We didn't have anybody saying, my kid's going to the NBA. Make sure he plays shortstop and bats first, or I'm not going to give you any more money. Anyway, that's what's happening here. I got Christ and I have the Antichrist. And who's in front of them? Israel. And what are they going to do? They're going to pick one. Right? How is it that Satan and Judas are going to convince anybody to pick them? How do they look? They look good. How do they sound? They sound good. How powerful are they? They're really powerful. What's Christ doing? How's he look, by the way? God has hidden himself into the body of a small, ugly Jewish man. Isaiah 53. That's God in there. Next to him is a tall, gorgeous, very powerful, great speaker. Who's going to win the election? Does Satan and Judas know this? They know it. It's almost like they're living today. How do they convince the nation of Israel to choose them? Simple. This is the Matthew 12 rejection of the Messiahship of Christ right here. How is it would happen? And then how is it that Israel would instead choose the man of Satan, the counterfeit, the Antichrist? On the surface, it seems impossible. It shouldn't be possible. Who in their right mind would choose evil over good? There's the key. Are we in our right mind? The whole world will choose evil over good. Christ was rejected by Israel on the basis that he was possessed by Satan. That's Matthew 12. That's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is, let me explain that to you who haven't been here. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means this. It means that God comes in the flesh and he stands before the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel rejects God who is physically present on the basis that he is in fact incarnated or has Satan inside of him. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, can only be done by a nation. That nation has to be Israel. Christ has to be present. And the nation has to reject him on the basis that Satan is inside of him. Who is Satan really inside of? Judas. Judas, Satan, expected, in my view, a side-by-side vote. 
Judas does have Satan inside of him. Judas is the Genesis 3.15 seed of the serpent. And he knows that these dumb people, these people will choose evil over good. They will choose. We do it too. We call good evil and evil good. We're dumb. It's what we do. And they knew they would win the vote. There was going to be a landslide. Was it a landslide? Yes. Will it be a landslide again? Will the world choose Judas over God? Will the world choose the Antichrist, the one who has Satan inside of him, again over God? Will they do it? What will be the vote? Ninety-nine the one? What will happen to the one? They're dead. What will happen to the ninety-nine? They're dead. That's the plan. Who will be elected? Jesus Christ or Judas Satan? Judas Satan. But there was a problem. They didn't understand Zechariah 11 very well. They made a mistake. They didn't see something. They didn't see the time frame. The rejection of the good shepherd was not immediately followed by the ascendancy of the man of nothing. It's an unforeseen contingency problem. It's an oops. They really did think this is how it would go. You will choose me. By the way, how many apostles chose Judas? How many voted for Christ? What's he say? I lost none. Eventually, he got all the votes, didn't he, from his apostles. And by the way, Jews did vote for Christ. How do I know that? Because you're sitting here. If they hadn't, we wouldn't be here. The Christian church is, the foundation of the Christian church was the Jewish martyrs. Okay. But Satan and Judas, they didn't quite have Zechariah 11 figured out. That's why you should read it and you should know it. Because they read it and they thought they knew it and they didn't, but they didn't know it. They didn't know that the rejection of the good shepherd wasn't going to be immediately followed by the ascendancy of the man of nothing. And so when did Judas and Satan figure out that Christ did not intend to seize his throne and become king of Israel? When did they figure it out? When did they figure out that Christ instead was going to do what? Sacrifice himself. They may have thought he was going to sacrifice himself because they figured he'd resurrect himself, which he did. And that would be a great sign. Now, they would have to do what if that's the sign? Because, by the way, Satan and Judas move very fast. They are really smart. A lot smarter than us. A lot more powerful than us. They figure out really fast what's going to happen. And so they react. But here's what they thought. They thought that once the Christ was rejected and they were chosen, then what would happen? My people would fight your people and we'd have a bloodbath. Did they know the Hebrew betrothal pattern? What's the Hebrew betrothal pattern? See, everything that Christ does is based on the Hebrew betrothal pattern, the 12 steps of the Hebrew pattern of marriage that God gave to the Jews. What the, what the bridegroom does is he stands there with the bride once she has chosen him in front of the priest or the rabbi, and he says, I leave now to go prepare a place for you in my house, my father's house, is many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he leaves her there. That's what he does. And what does she do? 
She goes back into her room and she waits for him. When does he come back? Well, it's hard to say, but he does build the building and he comes back and he gets her with a trumpet. Behold, the bridegroom comes and he snatches the bride. Boom. And then where does he go? He goes to the bridegroom mansion, doesn't he? That his father and he have prepared for the bridegroom and the marriage is consummated. How long do they stay there? A seven. How long is the seven? Seven days, seven months, seven years. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. You see the relationship? The bridegroom is going to come and take the bride. He's going to take her away for a seven, for seven years. While he's gone, who's here? The Antichrist is here. And what's he doing? Killing everybody he can, especially his followers. And then the Christ will come back. So we had the real order in Zechariah 11 is the rejection of the Christ, the death, the resurrection of the Christ, the gathering of the bride. That's where we are now. He is waiting for the bride to be presented to him pure and white. Then he will come and snatch her away. He'll be gone for a seven. We call that, by the way, the judgment seat of Christ. That's where the Christians are judged for their understanding of Scripture and their witness and their works, not for their salvation. But we will be judged by Christ for a seven. And while that seven is going, Going on, they have the ascendancy of the Antichrist, and then Christ returns to be king of it and take his throne in his thousand year reign of the Messiah on earth. So, now you know why Judas bought the land, don't you? Go ahead and put it down on your papers and send them forward. Now you know why Judas hanged himself on the land that he bought. Now you know why Judas participated in the handing over. Now you know what things are in the box that he always took away with him. Everybody got it? Somebody asked me last week, they said, you don't really give very many answers. You you act like you give answers, and you seem like you even have answers, but you don't seem to give very many. And I said, yeah, that's true. Did I give answers last week? Yes, I did. How many answers did I give? Two? Did I give two? Oh, I'm going to tell you, it was at least six or seven. So did you think you'd get any this week? Of course not. What's the matter with you? I have given you what you need to figure out why he's called a thief, what he steals, why he hands over, why he's the hander over, what's he trying to do, why he bought the real estate, what the things were in the money box. I've given that to you. If I just lay it out for you, what will happen to it? It'll disappear. If you, if you think it through, next week we'll do that. And we'll also do this, Gethsemane versus the wages, where the handover occurs is in Gethsemane. What's the difference between Gethsemane and Golgotha? One is the place where Goliath's skull is. That's where he chooses to be crucified on top of Goliath's skull. And John calls it the Garden of Goliath's Skull. That's where he chooses to be crucified. The other one is called the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And the handover, the death occurs here. The handover occurs here. God chooses to be handed over at the Garden of Gethsemane. What's the obvious question? Why? He can pick any place. This is the place he wants to be handed over and he wants Judas to hand him over. Why? And Judas knew the place. It says so, John 18, 2. Judas knew the place that he was going to hand him over. He knew that Christ was going to be there and he knew why. And he had to move fast because Christ told him to. He knew the place was Gethsemane. So next week we'll figure that out. We'll answer the rest of these questions that you should have already. Just reach back and put all the pieces together. You have all the pieces. Next week we'll do Luke 22.3 versus John 13.27. That's the wages versus the handover. Obviously, both events required extraordinary power. Satan had to be inside on both events. And we have to know why. Okay. Let's rise and be dismissed. Run to the buffet. Our song is Breathe, and it's on page 19.
heads. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord God, that you are good, that you're the source of all life, that that is the law, that life comes from you, that good comes from you, that truth comes from you. You are in constant authority, never not in authority. You are always in control, and you know all things. Thank you, Father, for that story, that truth that is in your word. Please be with us as we do our best to hold up Christ as God, as your Son, as the Son, as the second person of the triune Godhead. Please help us teach the truth to all who come. Thank you for these that have come today. Please bless them. Please bless the food that was brought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you can't stand the fact that you got no answers, you can come up here and I will tell you one or two. Just for you.